thank you for joining us on this Easter Sunday worship at CCSE. I'm Harold, one of the pastors, and I'm excited to be able to bring to you God's Word. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to jump to its conclusion today, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It's entitled, First Easter, the Resurrection. Please follow along with me as I read this. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is God's word. This is the actual ending to the gospel of Mark. They fled silent because they were just so afraid. Oh, that first Easter Sunday, very early in the morning, that Jesus Christ could have come back from death was unbelievable. My friends, it was as unbelievable to them as it is unbelievable to us, to you and I today. Although Jesus had predicted and publicly promised many times that he would suffer that he would die, be crucified upon a cursed tree, and be raised on the third day, nobody believed him. Maybe except Mary of Bethany in John chapter 11. Another sermon for another day. Notice there is not one male disciple waiting around, expecting to see something miraculous on this first Easter. And he write, in his incredible work, The Resurrection of the Son of God, his thesis, one of his thesis from much historical study is that no religion, no philosophy, no worldview in Jesus' day had any preconditions for or expectations of a resurrection in their lifetimes. They had no preconditions or expectations of a physical, literal, bodily resurrection in their lifetimes. So you see, the ancients, according to N.T. Wright, they were not more superstitious or gullible. They didn't even have categories for this. It was just as unbelievable, if not unimaginable to them, as it is for us today. I mean, consider how this passage is written and reported. Do you find sensationalism at work here? You know, like sensationalistic journalism, always trying to go after the dramatic emotional impact. No, in fact, you're going to find self-deprecation. Do you feel when you read this passage that the person trying to exaggerate a lot or he or she even includes embarrassing details? Who writes or makes up anything 
in which nobody looks or acts right. Look at the text. Look at the passage. Verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. They bought spices because they wanted to go and anoint a dead body for burial. Verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that they were wondering who would roll away that ginormous stone because Jesus had been buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. This was more like a cave hewn out of a ginormous rock. And they were wondering, well, who's going to roll away that large stone? Well, when they got there, it was rolled away, and they still had no clue what could have possibly happened. Then we pick up at verses 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They have no idea who this young man is, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Verses 5 and 6 tells us they were alarmed. Twice. It's repeated. This is the dominant real-life reaction of real people. And then in verse 8, it closes like this. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How does the gospel of Mark close? How is this written and how is this reported? Trembling and astonishment had seized them. At first, they weren't even good witnesses at all. They kept silent. I think their human brains could not compute or handle what they had seen. And in case you didn't know, it just closes with, they were afraid. They were just so afraid. And then, on top of all of this, I want you to consider that Mark, the earliest gospel author, bases the bedrock event to the entirety of Christian faith, which is the resurrection. Christianity rises or falls based on 1 Corinthians 15, based on the historicity and the reality of this event. He bases it upon the eyewitness report of women. Women, Josephus, a Jewish historian in Jesus' day, says, women, their testimony is not even admissible in a court of law. And he goes on to say, based on their gender. This was a dominant prevailing view in Jesus' day. So why would Mark, if he were trying to make up a movement to take over the world, include the names of women to be the first witnesses of the bedrock event. Why would he include the name of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome? The only reason he would include it is because this is what happened. It was women who were there first on that Easter Sunday morning and witnessed that the body had gone missing and they heard an announcement which was from an angel. This is how it went down. It's the only reason it's in there. And this week on March 30th, a remarkable article, a confession, if you will, was written by Amy Orr Ewing, where she says, quote, believe women has become the contested slogan of the Me Too movement. I know what happens if we don't. I've been living in the eye of a storm of trauma, dismay, and profound grief. Now, here's why Amy says that. It's because she initially dismissed the allegation of sexual abuse by a fellow woman 
against the founder and the figure of the organization she once served and defended, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. She says the fallout, layers upon layers, has just been catastrophic because of her and many others not believing in the testimony of women. Amy goes on to write this, quote, How prescient and poignant then that at the heart of the Christian faith lies the historic testimony of women. The gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to believe the word of women. The Easter message itself, Christ is risen, is the testimony of women. Oh, did you know that the very first women who witnessed and reported about the resurrection after they got over their fears and astonishment and trembling that it seized them, they know what it feels like to tell their story only to be met by hard skepticism? Because in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, it says, the men did not believe them. The women, they thought it was an idle tale. Oh, so get this. Believe the word of women. Believe the testimony of women. This was launched by Easter. This was launched that first Easter Sunday morning. But I want to turn and ask you a different question. What would have to happen for you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Oh, we just said, oh, it's just as unbelievable to them as it is to us. So what would have to happen now for you and I to believe that Jesus was literally, bodily, physically raised from the dead? Imagine, what would it take? Oh, I'm sure you would say something like, um, Pastor, it would have to take something pretty miraculous, right? It'd have to take something so mind-blowing earth shattering it have to take something so incontrovertible and undeniable that it takes a hold of me it just doesn't let me go something magnificent would have to take a hold of me in order for my current belief system and values and loves and lifestyle to be completely overturned and i say to you absolutely that is what it would take and it would take nothing less but here's the point here's the point Whatever it would take for you and I to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ today is exactly what happened to the first Christian believers. Something so undeniable. Something so magnificent. Something so powerful that moved outside in. You could not even resist it. It was unbelievable unbelievable the resurrection oh but let's move on to just a second second thought here what happened after that first easter sunday morning is inexplicable apart from the resurrection of jesus christ again the way verse 8 ends the gospel of mark you would figure nothing nothing is going to come from this this little fledgling movement because all movements die after its leader make self-deluded, grandiose claims that just don't come true. So why did this one movement not only survive, but it has not been stopped? It has not been contained with the passage of time, the enlightenment, science, and even all kinds of persecutions. 
It is estimated that 2 billion people, the world's population today, that is about a third of our world, bend the knee and worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who was raised from the dead. Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, used to work for the Richard Nixon administration, and he was caught and convicted and thrown in jail because he was part of the Watergate cover-up, that Watergate scandal cover-up. Well, in prison, Chuck Colson was converted to Christian faith because he reasoned that to not believe in the resurrection is to believe in the cover-up of 500-plus eyewitnesses on separate occasions. Again, this is according to Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, who argues, if you don't believe my witness, go and ask them. There are several around who are alive today. Go examine them, cross-examine them. And Colson goes on to say, to not believe in the resurrection is to then believe in the cover-up of all hundreds of people on separate occasions at the cost of their loved ones, at the cost of their livelihood, and even at the cost of their very own lives. But not one person recanted. The character and the quality of changed lives is inexplicable apart from the reality that Jesus indeed has risen from the dead. This is what converted and changed Chuck Colson himself. Oh, in our passage, look at verse 7. Happens to be my favorite verse out of this passage. The angel announces to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples Jesus is going to go meet you in Galilee and Peter. Why is Peter singled out? Why is Peter singled out by name? Well, this is a case study for how Jesus changes lives. Peter was once so confident and sure of himself. He was the outspoken leader of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He had heard Jesus teach with unparalleled authority. He had seen Jesus perform miracles, walk on water, multiply loaves of bread, cast out demons who came out shrieking. But none of this fundamentally changed Peter. Because Peter had prided himself above all others in his love and loyalty for Jesus. Peter took pride in his quality and strength and fervency of love and loyalty for Jesus. Now listen close. Whatever you take pride in. See, whatever you build your identity upon. If it's not what Jesus has done for you. That pride always turns into hate and hostility for anyone else who doesn't measure up to you. And pride itself will only make you more afraid, more insecure. Because on the night that Jesus was arrested, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Jesus was taken into rigged trials for an imminent crucifixion to come. Peter denied even knowing Jesus, the man who boasted and prided himself upon his love and loyalty for Jesus, completely bailed out. He ran for cover because pride itself will never cure you of your fears. And so now how would Peter ever recover after this? 
How will he ever get up from a crushed ego? It's completely lost. Will he ever be able to forgive himself? So in John's gospel, John chapter 21, you can find out why Jesus singled out the name of Peter. And he specifically wanted to come after Peter. Because over breakfast, over breakfast, upon and after his resurrection, Jesus restores Peter to lead his followers once again. He actually promises him, you're going to become the rock, the rock I build my church upon. Question, what qualifications did Peter meet to lead the people of God again? What qualifications did Peter prove to be restored to lead the people of God again? And it's not what you think. It's not what you think. The only reason Peter was restored is because he was forgiven after he had royally failed. Peter was justified even while he was guilt and shame ridden. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 announces, but he was raised for our justification. Peter was loved by Jesus when he couldn't even love himself. Peter was healed in his humiliation. He was healed after his hurt. Peter was emboldened, although he'd been completely broken. And when Jesus calls for you, and he comes after you and loves you like this, just like he did with Peter, he changes you inexplicably. He changes you like no one else ever can. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus unbelievable to them as it is to us. And apart from the resurrection, changed lives are inexplicable. Church history is inexplicable. The explosion of Christian faith throughout all parts of the globe, across all cultures, is inexplicable. Let me just close with this. The resurrection gives us hope. Hope of restoration. A hope of restoration. Look at the second half of verse 7. I told you verse 7 is my favorite. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as Jesus told you. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, everything Jesus ever said will come true. This is at the top of the list why I believe and worship follow Jesus to this day. If he got up from death, I will believe everything he says comes true. And this is Christian hope. That everything Jesus says will come true. And this is both realistic and rock solid. First, it's realistic. It's utterly realistic. You know, many of you listening today, the problem with the pandemic what has happened during the pandemic is it just completely scratched the record, put a halt, and just put in full reverse all of our false narratives and beliefs that life should just get, go from good to great to better and to the best. Many people falsely believe that life should be like successive seasons moving from strength to strength. But this is not how real life works. This is not even how God works. And this is not the storyline of the scriptures or the story of Jesus. This week, I went to the funeral of a longtime friend 
who grieves and mourns for his father. He lost his father. So moved and proud of him as he gave the eulogy in missing his father. There has not been one funeral I've sat through that felt right. They never feel right. I actually feel they increasingly upset me. They increasingly feel so wrong. Again, during this pandemic, all the ways that your life has been affected, all the things that you might have lost in over a year, in countless ways. I was speaking to a pastor in Manhattan, New York this week who was saying that as they begin to resume in-person worship services, and oh, how I look forward to that with you, my friends, that he can't even concentrate on his message or the order of worship because in New York, he's only more concerned about what will they do when they have to go home after worship ends. He wants to warn them, don't go home alone. Please go with someone else because he has a largely Asian-American congregation. Christian hope, Christian hope. Listen, because Jesus was raised from the dead, Christian hope accepts and can handle reality as it is. Oh, but it also, both, not only realistic, but it is also rock solid. This is rock solid hope. I'm not talking about a flimsy, fanciful dream. No, my friends, I'm not. I'm not talking about a wild gamble. This is guaranteed. This is guaranteed. And the reason it's guaranteed is because this hope is not based upon human beings whatsoever. It is based upon Jesus Christ, who with body and soul got up from death, demonstrating that he has conquered all forces of evil, sin, and shame, and even death itself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on this day as we celebrate and worship is a display of God's miraculous power, but it's not just a display of suspension of natural laws for the time being, but is actually the beginning of the restoration of the world as God created it to be. This is why Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 shows us a vision of the certain future. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Oh, my friend, so how can you, how can you have this kind of hope where you can handle reality and even suffer all kinds of loss? How can you come to know that death is not the end, but it's the beginning of a full restoration to come because of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us exactly how. Here's how it happens. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Did you hear that? By his great mercy, you can be born again to a living hope. A living hope. And here's how that living hope comes into your life. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 just simply tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has been raised from the dead, you 
shall be saved. The way that living hope enters into your life, and it's a hope not just for the future, it's a hope from the future, invading your present life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that indeed Jesus has been raised, there is a hope that will never die out. It'll actually come to perfect fruition. You'll see it with your own eyes. Stop trying to save yourself, prove yourself, build your identity, take pride in all the things that you and I can be or do. Stop doing that, but confess and believe and worship and follow Jesus. And as our brother Terry Ream shared today, hope and health and life and peace shall be yours now, and it'll increase into perfect measure when we too are raised from the graves to be reunited with him and every loved one that we've lost in him, a full, glorious restoration is yet to come. This is rock-solid hope. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit now who makes the unbelievable come true in our hearts, who gives us the accounting and the reason as to why lives can be so profoundly changed and who fills us with the living hope. Lord, I pray for each and every one right now in a world of pain and hopelessness and despair and guilt and loss and suffering by your great mercy. Please come. Make us born again as we worship and pray to Jesus, come into my life. I believe you are alive and well. Make me new. Hear us, O Lord. Hear every prayer that is prayed in that way today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.